Talks on Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. In today's episode, Jacqueline Schaeffer presents us with a text, The Riddle of the Repudiation of Femininity, The Scandal of the Feminine Dimension, a theme that she deployed at length in her book, Le Refus du Féminin, Las Fanges et son âme en peine, published by Presse Universitaire de France in 1997, republished in 2013, with an afterward by René Roussillon, and translated The Universal Refusal by Carnac Books in 2011. Jacqueline Schaeffer is an honorary training analyst of the Paris Psychoanalytic Society. She was a counsellor in the offices of Michel Fa, Augusta Janoux, and André Green from 1982 to 1989. She was a member of the editorial board of the Revue Française des Psychanalyses, and Deputy Director of the Debat de Psychanalyse. She was awarded the Maurice Bouvet Prize for Psychoanalysis in 1987. Jacqueline Schaeffer is the author of numerous collective works and articles in French and foreign journals on the theme of gender and femininity. A film interview and her articles can be sent on request to jacqueline.schaeffer1 at gmail.com. This text is read by Claire Kubel Sibert member of the Paris Psychoanalytic Society. According to Freud in 1937, in Analysis Terminal and Interminable, the repudiation of femininity is part of the great riddle of sex. It is a bedrock, the ultimate stumbling block that brings all therapeutic activity to an end. I would like, first of all, to define what I mean by feminine. My definition, the same is true of the way in which I use the word masculine, has nothing to do with gender. Gender is not a psychoanalytic concept, since the purpose of any analysis is not to accept it as such, but to call it into question in terms either of narcissistic or object-related cathexes or of identifications. I therefore define the feminine dimension in its conceptual sense as one of the elements of a specific difference that has to be constructed, a difference that is paradigmatic of all differences, that between the sexes. I shall therefore not explore the feminine dimension as dissociated from its masculine counterpart. I do not use the word in the sense of a primal feminine dimension of sexuality as Jacques André, of a primary feminine dimension as Florence Guignard, or of a pure female element as Winnicott. These all refer to a primal factor that as such has nothing to do with the advent in the individual of the difference between the sexes male-female. It refers to the identificatory face with the mother's maternal or sexual female aspect. My use of the word feminine here has to do with the test of otherness 
that is part of the difference between the sexes. I draw a distinction between the feminine sphere, which is internal and invisible, and femininity, which is visible, goes hand in hand with the phallic dimension, involves illusion and masquerade, and is a reassurance against castration anxiety for both men and women. When Freud came up against certain difficulties and failures in his psychoanalytic work, he spoke of a bedrock, that of the repudiation of femininity, which formed a stumbling block. This Scylla, coming after the Charybdis of the death drive, was, to my mind, his way of reintroducing the sexual element of restoring to the sexual drive the diabolical capacity that he had taken away from it, thereby acknowledging that it has just as much potential for disruption as the death drive itself. But why the feminine dimension? In an attempt to answer that question, I examined several hypotheses in my book, Le Refus du Féminin, traduced in English, Karnak Book Editions. One hypothesis that could be that this famous bedrock is the refusal of what seems to be the most bizarre feature of the difference between the sexes, the element that is particularly difficult to express in terms of anal or phallic factors, the female sex organ. Freud described the development of psychosexuality in terms of three pairings, active-passive, at the anal sadistic stage, universal penis, castrated penis, at the phallic stage, and masculine-feminine at puberty, i.e. the so-called genital stage. The active-passive pairing denotes two opposite polarities, while the phallic-castrated pairing functions in an all-or-nothing manner. Only the masculine-feminine pairing denotes a true difference, the difference between the sexes. That says, the way in which Freud expressed these ideas does tend to show how difficult it is for the genital aspect to break free of its pregenital forerunners. Lou-Andrea Salomé spoke of the vagina being taken on lease from the rectum, and that phase was adopted by Freud in 1917 on the transformations of instinct as exemplified in anal erotism. The penis is seen as a fecal stick. The female sex organ is defined with respect to the penis as an annex to it. The value of the vagina is that it functions as an abode for the penis. Freud refers to the male partner in sexual intercourse as an appendage to the penis. However, after defining the importance of the difference between the sexes, Freud went on to call it into question. In 1937, a fourth pairing was evoked. Bisexuality, repudiation of femininity in both sexes. He did not describe any forerunners of that element, but saw it as having biological origins. This was Freud's usual way of circumventing something that he found problematic. 
treated as predetermined. It is interesting to note that this new pairing, as well as each of the polarities that go to make it up, have to do with denial of the difference between the sexes, repudiation of femininity. What I call refusing the feminine dimension is a refusal of what turns out to be well high impossible to express in terms of anal or phallic logic, a female organ that is invisible, secret, strange, and which carries with it all kinds of dangerous fantasies. It makes men uneasy, not only because it gives them an image of their own sex organ castrated, so that they become anxious as regards their own genital organ, but also, and above all, because the opening up of the female body, its quest for sexual enjoyment, and its ability to accept great quantities of the constant thrust of the libido are sources of anxiety. In addition, although psychic bisexuality plays an organizing role as regards identifications, and in particular, the cross-identification of the Oedipal conflict, the fantasy of bisexuality, like bisexuality that is acted out, constitutes a defense against cathecting and processing the difference between the sexes. It would therefore seem to be the case that access to the difference between the sexes does not guarantee stability or security. What Freud called the bedrock may well be that of the difference between the sexes. I have argued that it is the work of the feminine sphere in both men and women that ensures access to the difference between the sexes and enables that difference to be preserved, however conflict-ridden it may turn out to be. This contribution to building up psychosexual identity nonetheless remains unstable because it requires work to be done on it constantly. It is always threatened by regression to the active-passive antagonism or the phallic-castrated pairing, both of which afford some relief to an ego that needs some work to be done when faced with the constant thrust of the sexual drive. Simone de Beauvoir wrote that one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman. I would argue that on the genital level, the feminine dimension, like its masculine counterpart, is not something that goes without saying once puberty is reached, as Freud would have it, and sexual intercourse begins. It has to be fought for over and over again, linked as it is to the constant thrust of the libido. As far as the mental apparatus is concerned, neither the physical changes nor the sexual excitation experienced at puberty can process the difference between the sexes. One has to wait as the woman waits for the lover for ecstatic pleasure to come along before the general feminine dimension can be wrenched from the woman's body. At that point, there is an experience of a true sexual differentiation, the creation of a feminine dimension that at last makes it possible for the ego to interject 
in accordance with the constant thrust of the drive in sexuality. Another hypothesis, what inevitably defines the sexual drive in a contradictory manner, belongs to the feminine sphere, those drives both nourish the mind and erupt into it. The Freudian theory to which I refer is a drive-related one, that of the libido and of the conflict which the latter creates for the ego's defenses. Here, a trajectory is involved, an unavoidable internal excitation which, from its source in the body to its aim, the quest for satisfaction, takes on a mental dimension as it becomes a drive. On its path from its source to its aim, the drive becomes operative psychically, as Freud puts it in Femininity, New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis. If that excitation does not succeed in becoming mentalized as a drive, or if the drive degenerates back towards excitation, what may then emerge is what we call psychosomatic disorders, pathologies of addiction, of acting out, of out-and-out frigidity, etc. Sexual drives, libido, have one fundamental predicate which gives them their true distinctiveness, constant thrust. That thrust derives from and is in opposition to the periodical impulses of the sexual instinct. A trip is a stimulus applied to the mind, wrote Freud on 1915, in instincts and their vicissitudes. It never operates as a force giving a momentary impact, but always as a constant one. In 1933, he added, it operates as a constant force that the subject cannot avoid by flight. It is from this pressing that it derives its name of trip. Jacques Lacan emphasized that point too when he wrote that the constant nature of that thrust implied that a drive cannot be looked upon merely as a biological function since the latter always has a a periodic rhythm to it. Drives do not ebb and flow. They are a constant force. It is because drives are constantly exerting pressure while the ego is periodic and temporal in nature, that according to Freud, there is a demand made upon the mind for work. In this way, the ego differentiates from the id. Mere excitation becomes drive-oriented. Genitality in human beings moves away from sexuality in animals, which is operational only when they are in heat and dependent on ostrus and has transformed into psychosexuality with a constant pressure. This is a major characteristic of human beings. The signal that the constant thrust of the sexual drives has reached the ego is the anxiety that is then experienced. The ego is not master in its own house. Overwhelmed by the libido, the ego experiences it as an internal foreign body. 
From the very beginning of life, the ego is indebted to anxiety because it has no choice in the matter. What bursts through is what in fact nourishes the ego. Unlike need, which can be satisfied by some specific action or other, the libido, given its very nature, can never be gratified in that way. As Freud puts it on 1912 in On the Universal Tendency to Debasement in the Sphere of Love, we must reckon with the possibility that something in the nature of the sexual instinct itself is unfavorable to the realization of complete satisfaction. It is up to the ego to say whether it is satisfied by a love object or by sublimation. The constant thrust of the libido defines the desire in human beings. If the drive were ever to be fully satisfied, why would the libido go on pressing and what would become of desire? It was his difficulty in theorizing the feminine sexual dimension in terms of the unavoidable constant pressure of great quantities of libido that led Freud to the idea of what he called the repudiation of femininity, beyond which it was impossible to go. Its characteristic features were penis envy and the refusal of homosexual passivity. What Freud did not theorize was what happened to the vast quantities of unbound excitation that are allowed entry into the ego without causing any traumatic break-in or a complete paralysis, a nourishing breakthrough, in other words. This is the point at which great quantities of libido are interjected, and one of the ways in which this is accomplished is via the genital feminine libido. Here, too, we find anxiety concerning the feminine sphere. Freud's theory of anxiety does not help us to think about that feminine dimension. Nevertheless, Freud, who was always extremely intuitive, wrote to Fleece on November 1899, I do not yet have the slightest idea what to do with the sexuality female aspect, and that makes me distrust the whole thing. A third hypothesis would be that, in employing the term bedrock, Freud was bringing a pessimistic note into his views on sexuality. Without his saying so explicitly, it is as though he was thinking of impotence, both directly sexual and that of the analyst who tries to do something about it. For Freud, women would remain absorbed in their penis envy, that, to some extent at least, is not a false premise, and men would focus exclusively on their homosexual anxiety about being penetrated. I would argue that, in both cases, we are faced with a pregenital defense against anxiety about genital penetration, that of a vagina that has to let itself be penetrated or which has to be penetrated by a libidinal penis. The difference between the sexes has to do with the sexual relationship as such. The erotic feminine dimension and the sexual relationship providing ecstatic pleasure are, without a doubt, the most repressed and taboo of representations, even among psychoanalysts who are much more comfortable with infantile sexuality 
no matter how scandalous that may seem. René Roussillon wrote on the postface of my book, Although psychoanalytic writings are full of matters to do with infantile sexuality or the drive, very much less has been written about how to define the part played by these factors in sexuality itself, in the kind of sexuality that is expressed in adult sexual intercourse, as long as the latter is not dissociated from the rest of mental life, it reveals an essential and fundamental feature of mental life as such. In 1915, in Observations on Transference Love, Freud himself wrote, Sexual love is undoubtedly one of the chief things in life and the union of mental and bodily satisfaction in the enjoyment of love is one of its culminating peaks. Science alone is too delicate to admit it. I, myself, underline this last sentence. It is through sexual intercourse with its ecstatic pleasure that are co-created both the erotic genital feminine dimension, the most accomplished of all in a woman's feminine sphere, and the masculine dimension in men. If there is one way in which the entry of that constant thrust into the ego can be perceived, developed, and experienced as an enhancement, it is undoubtedly through sexual intercourse which leads to that kind of enjoyment. The co-creation of the adult feminine and masculine dimensions, together with sexual pleasure, participate in those mutative experiences which lead to rearrangements of psychical economy and enrich the ego with affect-laden representations. It is therefore not by chance that Freud drew a parallel between what he called the riddle of femininity and the enigma of the mysterious masochistic trance of the ego. As regards transmission from mother to daughter, The fairy tale, The Sleeping Beauty, comes to mind. The mother, as harbinger of castration, says to the little boy as he charges out ahead, he spins proudly at the ready, be careful, otherwise you'll get into trouble. To the little girl, she will say, wait, you'll see, one day your prince will come along. The good enough mother is thus the harbinger of waiting expectantly. This consists in putting the erotogenic nature of the little girl's vagina in a safe place under the tender maternal blanket of primary repression of the vagina, as Denise Braunschweig and Michel Fin on their book La Nuit de Jour, Night, Day, put it. The lover will one day come along and awaken it, reveal it, her body will then develop various kinds of erotic capacity. Waiting, however, is a painful kind of excitation. Cathecting it will lead to the advent of that organizing nucleus we call primary erotogenic masochism. That primary form of masochism makes for an erotic cathexis of painful tension, gives substance to the non-gratification of a drive which, by its very nature, is impossible to satisfy 
and constitutes a fixation point and a buffer as regards disorganization that otherwise could be fatal. The link between erotic excitation, the violence done to the ego, and the pain of the intermittent loss of the primary maternal object means that sexual desire necessarily implies a cathexis of the relationship between ecstasy and pain, the gap between hallucinatory wish fulfillment and waiting for actual satisfaction, stamped with the seal of primary masochism. When this masochistic tendency turns toward the father, it implies that everything that happens to the girl's sexual body can be anticipated as coming from an attributed to a man's penis. The change of object transforms primary erotogenic masochism, a necessary element in differentiating from the maternal body, into a secondary masochism that would lead the girl to want to be penetrated by the father's penis. The guilt attached to that Oedipal desire means that the young girl expresses it in a regressive manner in terms of the fantasy a child is being beaten. Freud did not deny the wound suffered by the ego, nor the sexual wound. He theorized such events as the fantasy of the female sex organ being mutilated, feelings of prejudice, penis envy, the wound caused by deflowering, all of these from the point of view of castration anxiety and the castration complex. He did not, however, consider masochism as part of the experience of sexual relationships and of the pleasure thereby obtained. I myself have suggested that there exists a feminine erotogenic masochism, which is part of the genital feminine sphere. I would distance myself from any conception of the feminine dimension that could be likened to castrated or infantile. I see feminine erotogenic masochism as a genital dimension contributing to the pleasure that sexual relationships can offer adult masculine and feminine elements. This is a mental form of erotogenic masochism that is neither perverse nor enacted. It is strengthened by primary erotogenic masochism and counter-cathexis moral masochism. When imbibing occurs, It guarantees the linking that is needed to give the ego cohesion so that it can deconstruct itself and let in a considerable amount of unbound excitation. Thanks to this erotogenic masochism, the woman's ego can take on board the eruption of ecstatic pleasure. In women, this form of masochism involves submission to the sexual object. It has nothing to do with enacted sadism within a sadomasochistic relationship, nor with a preliminary ritual. It is the ability to open oneself up, to let oneself be taken over by a considerable quantity of libido, and to accept being possessed by the sexual object. As long as the lover's ego has managed to submit itself to the constant thrust of the libido, He will carry this into the woman's body, 
in order to open up and create the feminine dimension by wresting it from her. In order to do this, he will have to confront her conflict between her libido and the resistances of her ego. The dissymmetry in the difference between the sexes is enhanced by identifications. Women submit out of love. They cannot give their all without love. That is why, as Freud pointed out, they are more exposed to the loss of love. That is what ensures her dependence and submissiveness toward men in sexual intercourse. However, the fact that a woman can appropriate her sex organ through the experience of sexual ecstasy mingled with tenderness brings her the significant benefit of pleasure. From a psychoanalytic point of view, male domination, an undeniable fact of the organization of every society, has to do with the necessary paternal phallic function. This is a symbolic function that establishes law, enabling the father to separate his child from the mother and thereby give him or her access to the social structures of the world in which they live. I would say that the lover for ecstatic pleasure is also in the position of the separating third party, wrenching the woman from her primitive relationship with her mother. The mother did not provide her daughter with a penis, hence, as Freud pointed out, a great deal of aggressiveness towards her, but nor did she provide her with a vagina. It is through creating and revealing to her her vagina that a man will be able to wrench her away from her pregenital mother. That change of object is a change in submissiveness, anal submission to the mother, from which the young girl tried to escape via penis envy, is then transformed into libidinal submission to the lover. There is therefore a twofold change of object, from a pregenital mother to a dipole father, that is to say, to the genital mother, and from edible father to the lover for ecstatic pleasure. The work of the feminine dimension that a woman has to accomplish has to do with overcoming a never-ending task, the conflict that constitutes, whether she desires, denies it or not, female sexuality. Kewoi, what does a woman want? Well, a woman wants two contradictory things. Her ego detests being defeated, but her sex organ demands just that. It wants to yield, to be defeated. It wants the masculine dimension of a man, which is the direct opposite of his phallic dimension. An infantile sexual theory that exists simply to enable the difference between the sexes to be ignored. And therefore, it wants the feminine dimension of the woman. It wants vast quantities of libido and erotogenic masochism. That is the scandal of the feminine sphere. In the social, political, and economic fields, The struggle to ensure equality between the sexes is indeed a necessary one and must constantly be pursued. In the sexual field, however, 
Such a struggle is harmful if it tends to become confused with the abolition of the difference between the sexes, a difference which has to be upheld. This is because of the antagonism between the ego's defenses and the libido. Everything that the ego finds intolerable may contribute to sexual enjoyment, breaking in, sexual misuse of power, loss of control, abolition of limits, possession, submissiveness, in other words, defeat, with all of its polysemy. The feminine enigma can therefore be defined thus. The more she's wounded, the more she needs to fill desires, the more she falls, the more she makes her lover powerful, the more submissive she is, the more power she wields over her lover, and the more she's defeated, the more pleasure she takes and the more she feels loved. The work of the feminine dimension in men consists in allowing their penis to be taken over by the constant thrust of their libido, whereas the pleasure principle may incite them to function quite happily according to a periodic rhythm of tension and discharge. It is the capacity in a man to desire a woman constantly with his libidinal penis the capacity not to allow the fear of his own primitive mother, the fear of his own ecstatic pleasure, or that of the woman, to lead simply to discharge or to a a return to the confines of his ego, rather than to the discovery and creation of the feminine dimension in the woman. In other words, he has, for at least a certain period of time, to disconnect himself from the control of his ego, to overcome fantasies about his penis that have as their main aim that of verifying its solidity in sexual intercourse and to ensure that he is not frightened by fantasies involving the danger represented by the body of the woman as mother. The underlying terror in both sexes is their proximity to the sex organ of the mother from whose body they came. The avidity of drive-related pressure, never satisfied, cannot but be terrifying if all it implies is being devoured, swallowed up in the mother's body, an object of terror, but at the same time the lost paradise of fusion confusion. Yet, sexual enjoyment is created precisely through facing up to these terrors and overcoming them. As Freud puts it on 1912, anyone who is to be really free and happy in love must have surmounted his respect for women and have come to terms with the idea of incest with his mother or sister. Both sexes have to come to terms with the phallic structure. That narcissistic hypercaphexis of the penis works toward breaking free of the pregenital imago and the mother's ascendancy. Thanks to their extraction anxiety, boys can symbolize the part for the whole, taking support from their paternal identification. But how are girls to negotiate an internal component that is a whole in itself, And how are they to separate their own from that of their mother? Can the female sex organ be symbolized and brought into the mental sphere? For both sexes, the great discovery of puberty is that of the vagina. 
Of course, little girls are well aware of the fact that they have a hollowed out part and they have internal feelings triggered not only by their Oedipal emotions, but also by primitive traces of their physical contact with and seduction by their archaic mother figure. Nonetheless, the true revelation of the erotic vagina, the deep-seated erotogenic character of the female organ, can be accomplished only in the course of sexual intercourse, giving ecstatic pleasure. For both men and women, the other sex is always the female one, because for everybody, the phallic dimension is the same. For how could that narcissistic phallic being, who can be paired only with a castrated being, avoid lasping into fear of, content for, or hatred towards the feminine dimension? The adult genital libidinal component is the most difficult and violent of all. It mobilizes the entire strength of those anal and phallic defenses that we could call the refusal of the feminine dimension. It demands that the ego do some work of processing when dealing with the constant thrust of the libido and sexuality. It is the violent nature of that test that can confront and oppose the violence of the primitive mother figure's regressive capturing as well as the violence attributed to the death drive, both of which have non-differentiation as their aim. Opposed to phallic logic, impelled by castration anxiety, the existence of which is limited to denying, dominating, destroying, or avoiding the feminine dimension, the masculine-feminine pairing is set up by means of a co-creation through the discovery of the female sex organ. This can come about only through the masculine dimension of the man conquering and tearing away the woman's anal and phallic defenses. This is the masculine dimension of the lover for ecstatic pleasure on condition that he manages to discard his own phallic defenses and lets himself be dominated by the constant thrust of his libido carrying in, into the woman's body. It is only thus that men can succeed in losing their fear of women, as Jean Cournu formulated it. From time immemorial, men have had to tear women away from the night of their mothers, the queens of the night. Why drive related violence? Let me dare to say it because the scandalous aspect of the feminine dimension is erotogenic masochism. It makes the little Oedipal girl say, Daddy hurt me, beat me, rape me. The second phase, strongly repressed, of the fantasy that Freud theorized in his paper, A Child is Being Beated, on 1919. And the woman in love says to her lover, Do what you want with me, take me, defeat me. Everything that the ego and the superego find intolerable can contribute to sexual enjoyment. The price to pay is for the ego in both men and women to consent to letting go of its defenses when faced with genitality. Nowadays, women know or at least feel that their anxiety about their feminine aspect cannot be soothed or resolved in any satisfactory manner by any kind of phallic maneuver. Above all, 
they know and feel that the fact of not being desired or of no longer being desired by a man brings them face to face with a painful feeling of not having a sex organ or having it denied. That rekindles the hurt they felt as young girls forced to structure themselves in a phallic manner when faced with the ordeal of perceiving the difference between the sexes, that is, where the castration anxiety lies. It was in his twilight years that Freud, on 1937, after describing the corruptness of the death drive, opposed to those of life and of love, theorized the scylla of repudiation of femininity in both sexes. It is somewhat disturbing to note the extent to which the refusal of the feminine dimension constitutes a characteristic feature of human behavior and participates in its genesis in the mind to such an extent, indeed, that Freud built up a theory of psychosexual development centered on the phallus. For Lacan, the phallus is the central signifier of sexuation, desire, and sexual enjoyment. That infantile sexual theory in which there is only one sex organ, the phallic penis, must have represented a defensive maneuver against the eruption of the discovery of the difference between the sexes at the Oedipal phase. How are we to understand the sheer scope of the ongoing impact of this refusal of the feminine sphere? Are we to draw the conclusion that what has always threatened the political, social, and religious order of things is not only the power women have to procreate, but also, and to an even greater extent, their erotic capacity, as well as the fact that the maternal dimension interpenetrates that of the woman and the feminine dimension that of the mother? That said, we all know that the maternal dimension can contribute in both sexes to counter the erotic feminine dimension. Contrary to the phallic castrated pairing which upholds social structures and the balance of power, the masculine-feminine relationship is a mental creation which implies acknowledging and facing up to otherness in the difference between the sexes. The ability to transform a phallic castrated pairing into a masculine-feminine relationship determines the manner and quality of the sexual, affective, and social relationship that is set up between a man and a woman and bears witness to a work of civilization, Kulturarbeit. The status of women reflects the structure and history of any given civilization. It is the pivot and revealer of the changes that take place in society, the symptom of the crisis and issues concerning the balance of power between the sexes, and the symbol of equality. That equality must, of course, be conquered and preserved in the political, social, and economic spheres, but it is extremely important not to see this as the abolition of the difference between the sexes. That difference is enhanced when it comes into play in sexuality, given the antagonism between the ego's defenses and the libido. In a society that is less and less edible, one which tends to deny the difference between generation 
and between the sexes, perhaps psychoanalysts ought to feel that they have a particularly important role to play, that of guaranteeing a kind of sexuality that enhances the work of processing the co-creation of couples in the true sense of the word and sexual enjoyment or its positive forms of sublimation. At present, certain other elements are becoming more and more prevalent. Instrumentalist or perverse forms of sexuality, pleasure in destructive violence, dehumanization and fecalization of people, and the unbridled development of power. Maneuvers that aim to abolish differences, and in particular that between the sexes, are perhaps, as André Green has pointed out, the ultimate resting place of the death drive in its work of doing away with any and all differences. <laughs>